And what is our hope grounded in? Yes, it is grounded in the objective reality of the incarnation of God. To come to earth, to live a life of perfection, meeting all the demands of the holy, righteous Father, and then paying the penalty for our sins and going back to heaven. But how do we know, how do we know that that is true? Because we have been given the Bible that claims the uniqueness of being the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God. But what happens, and I assume that's happened to quite a few people in here somewhere along the line, when somebody takes issue with the fact that the Bible is, in fact, the word of God as we understand it to be the word of God, does your mouth start to go dry? Does your pulse rate increase? And then you try and get out of the conversation as quickly as possible? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. You have heard the aphorism, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach him to fish, and he sits in a boat and drinks beer all day. No, 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 that's, that's the cynical version of that. Teach a man to fish, and he, you feed him for a lifetime, right? Well, that's how I view my coming to the Word each and every Sunday that I'm here, to not simply spoon-feed you, not simply to give you the proverbial fish, but to teach you how to fish. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, But I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. One of the tensions we have seen from the outset of Mark's narrative is his focus on doing the Father's will. In other words, keeping fixed upon his mission in coming, which according to Jesus was, according to Luke 19, to seek and to save those who were lost, meaning all those destined for a Christless eternity. Mark, perhaps more than the other gospel writers, underscores Jesus coming to deal with man's sin which separates, not to deal with our frustrations in life, not to deal with our heartbreaks and our disappointments. And yet, Mark keeps reminding us that Jesus was a compassionate Savior. He was not unconcerned about the challenges of the daily grind. And so I find the repetition, I find in Mark the specific highlighting of Jesus' compassion so close in proximity to the seemingly, what I'll call, the cranky Jesus that we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the Syrophoenician woman in the previous chapter, the proximity of these two are not coincidental. You might remember, as I said a couple of weeks ago, saying that Jesus never lost sight of his compassion for people, and yet Jesus never let his compassion for the individual eclipse the grand purpose of his coming for all of mankind. 
After Mark's poignant examples of Jesus dealing with the two Gentiles back in chapter 7, showing that he indeed came to be the Savior of all who exercise faith in him, and that he came for all and not just the Jews. Now, what causes problems for many liberal religious scholars is the depth of the disciples' thickness and their habitual shortness of memory. You'll see what I mean as we go along. And I have to say, honestly, that I I sympathize, but let's see what I mean. So we were just told that Jesus has been with this crowd for three days, and remember, we're not in the era of Ray Kroc. Anybody know who Ray Kroc is? The founder of McDonald's. Okay. So, you know, we're not talking about there being a McDonald's on every corner now. And the people were hungry. And I mean that they were so hungry that Jesus was concerned that some of them wouldn't even make it back to their homes where they could uh, eat before passing out from a lack of nutrition. Verse 4. And so his disciples ask, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And Jesus was asking them, well, how many loaves do you have? Boy, this ought to be ringing a bell or two. And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and he broke them. And he started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. And they also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and they were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there. And Jesus sent them away. No big deal, perhaps, at first blush to us. But what causes problems for many liberal Bible scholars, and I put scholars in quotes there, is the demonstration, as I said, of the depths of the disciples' thickness, so to speak, and the brevity brevity of their memory. So they basically assert, that is, the liberal scholars, that no one can possibly be that slow on the uptake. And so they contend that the feeding that we read about a few weeks ago in chapter 6 and the feeding that we're reading about now in chapter 8 are not two different incidents. But rather they're the exact same incident and the reason there are different details is because the Bible, like any other book written by humankind, are full of such contradictions. So... Let's examine this feeding of the multitude in chapter 8 against the other feeding of the multitude in chapter 6 to answer the question, why should we care? First, we should care because the importance of having a basic understanding of such similar stories in the scriptures, and because this isn't the only one, This happens numerous times, and not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. And having such a basic knowledge of of these kinds of similar stories, in fact, touch on the doctrine of inspiration. Let me explain what I mean. 
In chapter 6, we read of the feeding of the multitudes, which does sound very similar to the feeding of the multitudes here in chapter 8. So familiar, as I said, that many believe that they are, in fact, the same story. But if they are indeed the same story, then one has to question the hallowed doctrine of what is called the inerrancy of Scripture, because, among other things, chapter 6 says that there were 5,000 who were fed, while this account now in chapter 8 notes that there were 4,000 who were fed. Well, which is it? And again, why should we care? Is this a situation that can be explained by, wait for it, Ipsissima Verba versus Ipsissima Vox? I knew you'd love that one. So all you got to do, you don't even have to know what it means. But if you get yourself in a pickle with somebody arguing over a point of Scripture, just say, oh, that's obviously a case of Ipsissima Verba versus Ipsissima Vox, and turn and walk away before they can have a chance to say anything. No. All right. Let me explain Ipsissima Verba versus Ipsissima Vox. It is Latin. It's a phrase that, uh, that uh, theologians like to use, in fact, in dealing with these kinds of issues in the Scriptures. Not all of them. Not all of them are relevant, but some of them are. Ipsissima Verba means exact words. Ipsissima Vox means exact voice. Now, what's the difference between those two? And remember, this is all under the umbrella of the doctrine of inspiration. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for correction, for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. So let me demonstrate the difference between Ipsissima Verba and Ipsissima Vox. If someone were to ask me how far I live from the church, I might tell them 1.46 miles. Or I might tell them a mile and a half. In reality, I live 1.46 miles, not a mile and a half. So is it that my memory is bad with my two different answers? Maybe, these days, question everything. Or is it that one is a very precise answer, meaning the exact word, 1.46, and I meant 1.46. That is the exact distance that I live from here. But nobody's going to answer like that for that kind of question. They're going to say one and a half miles. That is not the ipsissima verba. That is ipsissima vox, the exact voice. And we see, because we have human beings and human, human, uh, using, you know, human communication, both in the verbal, oral, and the written skills, and so we see Ipsissima Verba and Ipsissima Vox both coming into play throughout the scriptures. Now, it will be obvious when that's the case. You can't just, just kind of use that, as I said facetiously at the beginning of this, as an excuse and then walk away from somebody as if it reconciles the problem at hand. Now, to be honest, after all of that, while, as I said, some apparent discrepancies in the Bible can be explained this way, this one cannot. The differences in these two accounts of the feeding of the multitudes are too vast, and they are, those differences are irreconcilable. So, 
if the two stories of the feeding somehow turned out to be the very same story with these discrepancies in the chapter 6 versus the chapter 8 account, then how can we ever be certain that anything recorded in the Bible is reliable? How can we believe that Jesus ever walked on water in reality? Or that He healed the blind? Or that He healed anybody? Or that He raised people from the dead? Or even that He Himself raised from the dead? And this is exactly one way that the wayward liberal churches of today justify many of their aberrant doctrinal views the way they do. So this isn't simply an exercise in mental gymnastics. Let me take again a few minutes to compare the two stories of the feeding of the multitudes and see if they can, by any stretch of the reasonable imagination, be construed as the same incident with variation in minor details. So again, while we admit that the two stories have some striking similarities, they also have striking differences, as should be obvious. The most obvious is that 5,000 were fed in chapter 6, while here in chapter 8, only 4,000 are noted to have been fed. This is a problem, again, as I said, if we contend that all Scripture is inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative, and is indeed the Word of God. And the most troubling aspect of the chapter 8 account is the fact that the disciples' reaction, if this, in, if, this in, if this in fact is the same incident as chapter 6, simply it, it, it works to explain why they were so thick. They really weren't so thick if this is the same incident. But if it's two different incidents then the criticism that they couldn't possibly be that thick can be used to say, well, well, see, they are the same incident. They're not two different incidents. But they are two different incidents, which means the disciples really were that thick. Let's talk about that. These are the same guys, remember now, who have experienced Jesus' many miracles and these are the same guys who, obviously, duh, in chapter 6, Jesus used to feed a different, large mass of people. So, not unreasonably, some read the two accounts and say, again, nobody can be that dull. So, this must not be another feeding, but in fact, a different version of the same one recorded just a relative few verses earlier. And I admit my initial instincts, my initial instincts might be to agree. I mean, come on, guys, referring to the disciples. You guys just went through this. I mean, there are so many parallels, so many similarities. How can you be asking the same stupid questions that you've already experienced very recently? Or at least it seems in the way the texts are put together. Well, while my instincts may be to agree, again, there is that pesky doctrine of inspiration and of infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. And that demands faithful allegiance to the fidelity and the authority of Scripture, whether it seems like there's an apparent error or not. 
Okay, well, given that then, though, does that mean that we have to blindly accept something that seems problematic? If we have a reasonable God, and obviously we do, He is the, he is the ultimate reason, then God's going to be reasonable in what He has presented to us. And what I want to say right now, I want to say especially to our high schoolers and to our collegians, because you are going to get hit. And you're going to get hit over and over again. And by the way, if you think a Christian college will necessarily protect your dear ones from such assaults, you are unfortunately sadly mistaken, depending on where they go. And those colleges are getting even fewer and fewer between. When you get hit, not if you get hit, but when you get hit with any kind of supposed contradictions of Scripture and why they are just like any other piece of literature, you don't have to start having a panic attack. You don't have to start hyperventilating. Remember Solomon's words. In Proverbs 18, the first, meaning the professor, to plead his case or her case seems right until another comes and examines him. So no matter how compelling what you're hearing seems to be, remember, if there was another individual in there who understood the Scriptures of equal academic and intellectual footing as that professor, that professor would be buried under objective, reliable reason, rationale, and evidence of the Scriptures as to what the truth is. So let's take a reasoned approach to this whole question of are they, in fact, the same incident or two different episodes? Well, what I like to do is I say, okay, can I come up with, with an example? An example of what? Remember what's the most troubling aspect in this and what spawns the whole idea of contradiction? It's that the disciples couldn't possibly, already having fed the multitude here in chapter 6, in chapter 8 already, they couldn't possibly be going through the same thing again and asking the same stupid questions. Okay, Remember, that's the tipping point. So, can you think of any other times, anywhere in the Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter, but can you think of a single circumstance where people who are experienced eyewitnesses to God's wonder-working power and yet seem unbelievably dim-witted. Well, <laughs> oh, there are so many in both the Old and New Testaments. The very first one that came to my mind is from the book of Exodus. I cannot think of any people group who had a more compelling first-hand experience of the miraculous, wonder-working God over and over and over again than those people that God led out of Egypt at the Exodus. 
First leading up to the Exodus, remember, was all the miracles that God wrought in the ten plagues to bring about their eventual deliverance. And then, of course, there was the night of the Passover with the angel of death passing over those who faithfully put the blood on the doorposts. And then if you know the story, as I said, God used miracle after miracle to bring Pharaoh to his knees. And then he wows the Jews in the course of the very beginning stage of the exodus, of the departure from the land of Egypt, where God does what? He parts the Red Sea and they cross on dry land to the other side with Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit. And God's people barely get on the shoreline. Pharaoh's army is in the midst of the waters parted and God says, whoops, and no more Egyptian army. And God's people are miraculously delivered. If you were the one that experienced that, forget even about the ten plagues and the Passover. There you are. You're walking through an ocean. I mean, I'd be going, let's run across here. I mean, not that I have a lack of faith or anything else, but, you know, I just don't want to take any chances. That's pretty compelling. That's pretty amazing. How can your life not be changed by that? And ever doubt God again in something much smaller and puny in comparison. Well, (laughs) if you know the story, you know where I'm going. In Exodus chapter 15, the people just cross on dry land, and what do they do? They are literally, literally, according to Exodus 15, they are singing praises to God. God, you are awesome. You rock. I don't know how it goes. I'm not big on the lyre thing. That's an instrument. That's not. Anyway, forget it. So they are singing the praises in Genesis, uh, Exodus 15. And they are barely across the Red Sea. Three days. Three days, not three years, not 300 years, but three days. They just walked through the depart, the parted waters on dry land. And they run out of water. Oh, the Hebrew says they begin to grumble against Moses. Why did you bring us out here? What do you mean, why did I bring us out here? I didn't bring us out here. God brought us out here. That's irrelevant. We don't have water. We're so thirsty. (laughs) Okay, we don't have time for this. (laughs) Sorry, sometimes I get a little carried away. So anyway, so all right. So what does God do? He miraculously provides them with water. End of all their grumbling forever and ever. Parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues. God just brought water. Now what? Well, it's only days later. God's already provided water miraculously. They're burping with joy. The hard water hardly has time to go through their kidneys. And now they're hungry. I'm hungry, Moses. I am so hungry. My stomach's growling. I've got hunger pains. Why did you bring us out here just to starve to death? (sighs) 
And they actually say, would that we have died, would have died back in Egypt, at least we would have died with full bellies. So what does God do? God creates for them a supernatural, heretofore unknown, divine food substance called manna, which in the Hebrew, as close as you can get anyway to the, to the Hebrew, means, what's this stuff? <laughs> All right? No, seriously, that's, that's what it means. It means, what's this stuff? All right? Now, centuries later, another gentleman invented a steak sauce called, what's this here stuff? Now, I... <laughs> I'm just curious if there is any reaction in the next service to that. I'll let you know next week, okay? God's hallowed people were thirsty. God provided water. They got hungry. God provided them supernatural food. Guess what happens? They become thirsty again. God provides miraculously more water. And then what happened? They got sick of the manna. Yeah. God, I'm hungry. Miracle, supernatural food, unknown to mankind before. Oh, man, I'm getting so tired of manna, manna stew, manna soup, manna with this, manna boiled, manna steamed. I don't want any more manna. And the book of Numbers has a very sobering record of history, but is always funny to me looking in. Because they complain about how they miss, get this, the free meat that they had in Egypt. Why did they have free meat? Because they were slaves. And they were being given their food so they could go out and break their backs and work for the Egyptians. (laughs) You talk about thick. And God, in Numbers 11, 18 through 20, is ticked off. This is what we read. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. Oh, good. Uh, I think. But he seems kind of angry. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were... We were well off in Egypt. You were in bondage. How our perspective changes in extremity. Therefore, I don't like this. The Lord will give you meat. Oh, oh, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day. You shall not eat two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month. Get ready for this. Until it comes out of your nostrils. That's the Word of God. That's not my interpretation. (laughs) Until it comes out your nose and becomes loathsome to you. Why? Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Why did they leave Egypt? Because God was delivering them into the promised 
land. Okay. I remember reading this. It was probably the first time I read it, and I just, I could, I've never gotten that picture out of my head of them eating and eating and just kind of somehow supernaturally being, being force fed, and they're just eating and they've got quail coming out of their noses. Yeah, ew. And I remember thinking, what a bunch of whining, sniveling ingrates. Now, mind you, this was a long time ago I read this and I had these thoughts. No one could possibly be that short-sighted and blind to what God had already done. And then I spent the next four decades living with myself. And I have to say, things have tempered quite a bit, despite what it seems this morning. So let me go back to the disciples and their response to Jesus, ready to use them to feed another large group in a second incident. First, I want you to note, again, that though I've alluded to this, but the way the narrative, narrative is laid out, meaning its location in the book of Mark, compared to the feeding in chapter 6, literally gives us the impression that these two incidents, these two feedings of different multitudes, occurred almost boom, boom, one right after another. And so, yeah, so, you know, maybe only, only days apart. And so we think, well, yeah, I mean, they couldn't possibly be that thick. But remember, there could have been considerable time between these two events. Not everything that occurred in any of the scriptures is recorded, right? But only those things that God through His Holy Spirit wanted recorded for us. So because something occurs, boom, boom, it doesn't mean that, oh, just a few hours or a few days later, this and then this happened. No. There could be a, a quite a span of time in there. Another consideration of the disciples' reaction to Jesus wanting to feed the crowds may actually it may actually show some growth on the part of the disciples rather than highlighting what seems to be arrested development as men of faith. Here's what I mean. Remember now that they were present each time that Jesus worked a miracle. And remember when Jesus worked the miracles, what he said, shh, don't let the word get out. Keep it hush-hush. And they were not merely present for the miracles, but they were also the ones to whom Jesus said, we have to leave all the needy, we have to leave the sick, we have to leave the poor and the demonized and the careworn, etc. And we have to go to other places now to preach the good news. So perhaps they're posing the question, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people could possibly could possibly be revealing that they weren't presuming that Jesus would just wave his hand and perform another miracle every time there was a crisis are you following me just because Jesus fed the multitudes at point A they weren't presuming that when they come now to another, the next multitude who are also hungry, that Jesus is necessarily going to go, okay, well, let's feed them too. 
Because after all, every time Jesus did that sort of thing, it caused him problems, so to speak, for the advancement of the Father's mission to preach the good news. You go back again to that salient, important chapter of chapter 1 of Mark, where Jesus says, under cover of dark to the disciples, let's get out of here, because my working miracles has become too popular and too distracting, I'm paraphrasing, and we need to preach the good news in other places. Some of the differences in the two stories of the feedings eliminate the possibility of it being the same incident. In chapter 6 account, the people, you might remember, were organized into groups of 50 and 100. In this account, there is no such organization of the crowds, and the food that they have to begin with is also different than the food in chapter 6 that they had to begin with. And the baskets that they used to gather the pieces. Now, you wouldn't know this except for looking in the text in the original language. The baskets, though, were also different. In chapter 6, the word there for basket is, is pretty much what you, we would think of as a picnic basket that we would use for a personal you know, meal outside. It was a very small basket. But the word for the baskets used here is a basket large enough for a human being to climb into. And we see it, in fact, used again in Acts chapter 9, I believe, where Paul, remember, gets into a basket and is lowered down the wall as he is uh, there in captivity or at least trapped in Damascus. And they're lowering him to be able to escape. At the end of the individual accounts in chapter 6 and in chapter 8, oh boy, Jesus sends the disciples on ahead of him across the water. You might remember. Jesus said, you guys go on ahead. I'm going to keep the crowds here this time so that they don't come and meet us again on the other side when we're trying to get away. In this account, however, Jesus gets into the boat with the disciples and they depart for Dalmanutha, not just across to the other side. Of the lake. Now, there are other differences, but I'm just going to talk about one last nail in the coffin debunking that these are the same incident. Jesus, in verses 19 and 20, that's later on now in in chapter 8, Jesus himself says, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Twelve. Referring to the first incident. Then Jesus says, And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. So while there are similarities, as I said, these are absolutely two distinct miraculous feedings of the multitudes, which means when these supposed contradictions are thrown in our face, we don't need to run with our tails between our legs shrieking, I knew the Bible was wrong! And just for kicks, I went onto a website that boasts you know, I don't know, 101 Bible contradictions. And I just went through there just very randomly, very quickly, and just even just looked at the titles, and I go, huh, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, huh, you knucklehead, yeah, yeah, got it, got it, okay. What was painful to realize was that the man who was writing all these, 
who will one day have to answer for this before (laughs) the God that he debunks, is so easily swayed from the truth by what are either shallow or simply untruthful or unthoughtful arguments. One and just one little example. Is God a God of war or a God of peace? Now this is what he's talking about is a contradiction. Here's what he lists. Exodus chapter 15 verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Oh, but Romans 15.33 says, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. There it is. There's His contradiction. I'm like, are you serious? Oh my. May the Lord have pity on your blinded, deluded reason. Because you know, even in our experience as humans, I can easily justify calling, just for example, Winston Churchill a man of war and a man of peace. In fact, I can call myself a man of war, quite literally, 1972 to 1975. But now, I won't even finish the sentence there. And so Jesus departs with the disciples and the Pharisees, as we're going to pick up here next week, by now, of course, are are intended on destroying Jesus because of all his signs and wonders and miraculous power and because of his growing in popularity. To be sure... I do not understand everything, not even close to everything in the scriptures. There are contradictions that, frankly, I really can't answer. It doesn't mean there isn't an answer. It simply means that I don't know it. I don't have comprehensive knowledge of everything. Duh. But you see, I do have faith that when God says, and with the overwhelming compelling evidence of the rest of Scripture from beginning to end, that this is, in fact, the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative Word of God. And so when I come across, or if I come across something that just seems to be, hmm, wow, I, huh? hmm, huh, okay, I don't know. Right now, frankly, I'm not interested enough to try and find out what the answer is. I'm not going to worry about it, and I move on. But we can't do that, and we shouldn't do that with everything. If for no other reason, so that not if, but when it happens, whether we even come back at somebody with an answer or not, we still have the peace and the assurance that this is the special revelation of God to mankind. And it is absolutely trustworthy, so trustworthy that you can stake your present life on it and you can stake your eternal life on it and I hope you've been encouraged by just this one just this one little example this morning of how shallow some of the argumentation can be against these so-called contradictions let me have a stand
Father in heaven, (laughs) at the end of the day, it is all by faith. Our belief in you, our belief in ourselves as sinners, our belief, our faith in you as our Redeemer, as our Savior, our faith in you as coming again, our faith in an eternity with you based on your words and your life and death and resurrection and all the objective realities that go with that, but also the questions that go with that, Lord. Our faith at the end of the day is a gift from you. And I pray, Lord God, for every person in here, and especially our younger people who are being assaulted and will have their faith challenged and assaulted, that, Lord, you would strengthen their faith in those times rather than allowing it to be weakened. And even when they walk away going, wow, that was compelling, I, I, I don't know what the answer is, that their faith would not be diminished One iota, trusting that over time, in your timing, in your way, you will show them that there are answers to everything. In your name I pray, amen.